Section 33 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Sutner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 8, Part 3. The autumn had come. Peace was signed at Vienna on October 30, and with it had come the time when my darling wish, Frederick's retirement, could be carried out. But man proposes and circumstances master him. An event occurred, a heavy blow for me, which brought to nothing the plans we had cherished so joyfully. It was simply this. The house of Schmidt and Sons failed, and my whole private fortune was gone. This bankruptcy was also a sequel of the war. The shot and shells shatter not only the walls against which they are aimed, but, through this destruction, banking houses and financial companies over a wide area fall to pieces also. I was not brought thereby, as so many others were, to beggary, for my father would not let me want for anything, but the plan of retirement had to be quite given up. We were no longer independent persons. Frederick's pay was now our sole substantial resource. Even if my father could assure me a sufficient allowance, it was out of the question, under such circumstances, that Frederick should quit the service. I, myself, could not suggest it to him. What sort of a part would he be playing in the eye of my father? There was nothing to do. We had to submit." destiny in aunt mary's phrase i have not much to tell of the affliction which this great pecuniary loss caused me it was a question of several hundred thousand florins for there are no long entries in my diary about it and even my memory which has experienced since then so many impressions of far deeper pain bears no longer any very lively traces of these incidents I only know that I was chiefly sorry for the beautiful castle in the air which we had been building. Retirement, purchase of an estate, a life independent and apart from the so-called world. In other things, the loss did not hurt me so much. For, as I have said, my father would, during his life, not allow me to want for anything, and would, afterwards, leave me a sufficiency and my son Rudolph was sure of wealth in the future. One thing comforted me. There was not the slightest prospect of any war. One might hope for ten or twenty years of peace. Till then, Schleswig, Holstein, and Lohenburg were finally given over, by the Treaty of October 30, to the free disposition of Prussia and Austria. These two, now the best of friends, were to share, in a brotherly way, the advantages so accruing, and find no cause for quarreling over them. Nowhere, on the whole political horizon, was there any black spot visible to one's consideration. The shame of the defeat we had sustained in Italy was sufficiently atoned by the military glory we had gained in Schleswig-Holstein, and so there was no longer any occasion for military ambition to conjure up new campaigns and I was also pacified with the following consideration. That war had come so short a time since, I took, as a pledge, that it would not be very soon repeated. 
Sunshine follows after rain, and in the sunshine, one forgets the rain. Even after earthquakes and eruptions of volcanoes, men build up new dwellings again and do not think of the danger of a repetition of the past catastrophe. A chief element in our life's energy appears to reside in forgetfulness. We took up our winter quarters in Vienna. Frederick had now got employment in the Ministry of War, a business which he, at any rate, preferred to barrack life. This year my sisters and Aunt Mary had gone to spend the carnival at Prague. That Conrad's regiment was quartered in the Bohemian capital was, perhaps, only a coincidence. Or could this circumstance have had any influence on their choice of a winter resort? When I gave a hint of this to my sister Lily, she blushed deeply and answered with a shrug of her shoulders, "'Why, you must know that I do not want him.' My father repaired to his old dwelling in the Herengasse. He proposed to us that we should settle down with him as he had room enough, but we preferred to live by ourselves and hired an entresol on the Franz Joseph's quay. My husband's pay and the monthly allowance made me by my father amply sufficed for our modest housekeeping. We had indeed to renounce subscriptions to opera boxes, court balls, in fact, all going into society, but how easily did we renounce it? It was indeed a pleasure to us that my pecuniary losses made this quiet way of life necessary, for we loved a quiet way of life. To a small circle of relatives and friends, our house was always open. In particular, Lori Griesbach, the friend of my youth, often visited us, almost more often than I liked. Her talk, which had before appeared to me sorely superficial, I now found so insipid as to be quite wearisome, and her intellectual horizon, whose narrowness I had always perceived, seemed now still more restricted. But she was pretty and lively and coquettish. I understood that in society she turned many men's heads, and it was said that she had no objection to being made love to. What was very unpleasant to me was to perceive that Frederick was very much to her taste, and that she shot many darts out of her eyes at him, which were evidently intended to fix themselves in his heart. Laurie's husband, the ornament of the jockey club, the race course, and the colise, was well known to be so little true to her that a slight imitation on her side would not have deserved too strong condemnation. But that Frederick should serve as the medium of her revenge I had a good deal to say against that. I, jealous? I turned red as I caught myself in this agitation. I was, in truth, so sure of his heart. No other woman, none in the world, could he love as he did me. Ah, yes, love, but a little blaze of flirtation? That might, perhaps, have flashed up by the side of the soft glow which was consecrated to me. Laurie did not, in any way, conceal from me how much Frederick attracted her. I say, Martha, you are really to be envied to have such a charming husband. Or, you should keep a good lookout on this Frederick of yours, for all the women I know are running after him. I am quite certain of his fidelity, I replied to this. Don't flatter yourself. To think of fidelity and husband being coupled together, that is impossible. For example... 
you know how my husband... Good heavens, you may perhaps have been wrongly informed. Besides, surely all men are not alike. Yes, they are. All. Believe me. I know none of our gentlemen who do not. Among those who pay me attention are several married men. And what is their object? Certainly not to give me or themselves exercises in fidelity to marriage. I suppose they know you will not listen to them. And do you think Frederick belongs to this crew? I asked with a smile. That is more than I can tell you, you little goose. But, for all that, it is very good of me to let you know how much I am struck with him. Now, all you have to do is to keep your eyes open. My eyes are wide open already, Laurie, and they have, before now, observed with displeasure several attempts at coquetry on your part. Oh, that's it. Then I must disguise it better in future. We both laughed, but I still felt that, in the same way as behind the jealousy which I pretended for fun, a real movement of this passion lay hid. So behind the chat, with which she affected to tease me, there lay a germ of truth. The arrangement to marry my son Rudolph one day to Laurie's little Beatrix was still kept intact. It was, of course, more in play than in reality. The main question, whether the children's hearts would beat for each other, could only be decided by the future. That in a worldly point of view, my Rudolph would be a most eligible match was certain, and so much the more fastidious might be he in choosing. Beatrix, indeed, promised to be a great beauty, but if she took after her mother in coquetry and shallowness of mind, she would not be one I should desire for a daughter-in-law. But all that was in the far distance. Laurie's husband had not shared in the Schleswig-Holstein campaign, and that annoyed him much. Laurie, too, was grieved at this ill luck. Such an ice victorious war, she complained. Griesbach would have been sure to have got a step by this time. However, the comfort is that in the next campaign... What are you thinking of? I broke in. There is not the least prospect of that. Do you know any cause for it? What should a war be waged about now? What for? Really, I have nothing to do with that. Wars come, and there they are. Every five or six years, something breaks out. That is the regular course of history. But surely some reasons must exist for it. Perhaps, but who knows what they are? Certainly I don't, nor my husband either. I asked him in the course of the late war, what is the exact thing they are fighting about down there? I don't know, he replied, shrugging his shoulders. It is all the same to me. But it is a bore that I am not there, he added. Oh, Griesbach is a true soldier. The why and what for of the wars are not the business of the soldiers. The diplomatists settle that amongst themselves. I never bothered my brains about all these political squabbles. It is not the business of us women at all. We should, besides, understand nothing of it. When once the storm has broken, we have only to pray that it may strike our neighbors and not ourselves. That is certainly the most simple plan. End of section 33. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen. Gilbert, Arizona.